Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Well, as the title of today's show has given away our star guests i won't prolong the intro anymore karun welcome back thank you very much yeah um you know it's always uh, an interesting time because we kevin and i start with a dozen big questions and then we get down to about six and then bump it back up so it's all very exciting karun's piece should appear with some nice new shiny cars some of which we genuinely knew and some of it should be last year's with a new launch at red bull <clears throat> our third special guest today is our grand prix editor alex kalanorkis uh, welcome back to the podcast your first one this year no no we did autosport international we, we did autosport international where yeah. you stared at your shoes I yeah. did, yeah. So I mean, obviously, the listeners. In, well, I left you there again. Right? Yes. You know like, what? I I'm, feel they're very. They're bright. I red. walked in. I thought they're very Marlboro McLaren. Bright red, bright red Adidas. I, I would suggest that there's a the proportion of red to white is a bit too strong. From, from I don't know. It red. feels very Joe Ramirez. Should have had yellow socks on, yes. it, shouldn't they? Yeah, I think so. Sort of set it off nicely. And also because I realised before I came got out of the car that my four year old had smeared something on my white t shirt. I also put on some branded clothing to hide it as well, <laughs> so that Karun wouldn't look at me and think. Dude, you've got dirty clothes on today. But well, you wouldn't definitely survive at Marvel <laughs> McLaren in a Ronda in this world, would you? <laughs> Stains on your shirt. Uh, let's talk about this time of year, Karun. The, the madness of the season hasn't started yet, so what keeps you busy in, in January, February? Most of the time it's spent uh, trying to keep my children from destroying our house, but uh, that's gone okay so far. Uh, yeah, a little bit of Formula E over the winter, go to some of those weekends. Um, I, I quite like it, you know, something different and uh, young guys like JQs, great talents who never had the money to go up the pyramid towards F1, given a great chance and, uh, you know, he's doing a good job in FE. Nice to see people like Jake Dennis and Pascal Verlaine coming through the pack, you know, so the, the racing has actually been quite exciting to watch. They've also done something which the rest of motorsports should pay attention to, which is make the car smaller. And cars also, keep getting bigger and bigger, and Formula E have actually shown with Gen 3 that they don't need to keep getting massive. There's something about the cars that look faster, even though they're not particularly faster than Gen 2, but they look 
squirrely and they look more interesting to watch on telly. I've not been to a race. I, I still don't like them. Like, I just don't like the look. I, they, they look dynamic. I just, there's something about the shape of the wheels at the front. And it was I covered in Formula E during the Gen 2 era and I just think that car, they'd finally found their their sort of their look there's that this is us this is what formula e is and i think i just a bit of a shame that it went away from that but i do i take the point about the smaller cars being better absolutely well i am going to use this as a segue to bring us back to f1 oh yeah because a good point. I, i've screenshotted a post from the autosport instagram feed on the 15th of january showing all the car weights and how f1 cars have gotten fatter and fatter and bigger and bigger and this is one of my biggest bugbears i mean colin chapman would be raging wouldn't he we saw that graphic and just seen what the weight limit is nowadays. They've essentially put a, a third of the weight on in what fifteen years. It's you know, and that that has a knock on effect on everything else because it means you use more energy. They look cumbersome in slow corners. They so big they chuck out huge amounts of spray in the wet. Like there's lots of knock on effects from making them big and heavy. I know a lot of it is to do with the safety stuff. Well, no, a lot. Um, I but, think the but, biggest but change should be pared down. Yeah, the biggest change was hybrids, wasn't it? I think I sat here a year ago saying I was one of the few people who campaigned for F1 not to be hybrids anymore. I think F1 should just be biofuel, develop biofuels, and go. And that's where the FIA, I feel, haven't taken control of the whole ecosystem of motorsport and what the future looks. Because you should say Formula E is electric. Lamar is going hybrid and Formula One should go biofuels. And you've got three distinct verticals who are all contributing to the automotive industry in terms of R&D. And actually, guess what? If we took the batteries and all the hybrid stuff off, we could knock 100 kilos off these cars and make them smaller and more raceable. There's almost a, a bizarre reverse safety issue. Like George Russell spoke about this at the end of the last year, that they're getting so heavy, it's like you're almost crashing a bus rather than crashing a smart car. There's a lot of energy at a very high speed still. So it's it's getting to not quite a tipping point, but I think there are certainly a lot of concerns around it. I think Formula One should do one thing really well. And I say that as someone who drove up in my electric car today. It's not particularly interesting. It gets me from A to B and it's very nice and comfortable And uh, with my solar panels on my home and I, I feel all very worthy. But I don't want Formula One to be that. I want, I want to go watch some interesting racing. And if that means burning some e-fuels that, or, or whatever, that's fine. But it seems such a halfway house at the minute. I'll tell you, we're sitting here at Silverstone in the wing. Six months ago, we ran a, and I say we because I work with Williams Heritage, but we ran Sebastian Vettel in a 92 V10 Renault Nigel Mansell uh, car on biofuel. And we showed, without changing the hardware, it was a bit of software, that you can run V10s. So, you know, bring the noise back. That, that was absolutely amazing, by the way. I was there, obviously, for the British Grand Prix. We were there. It's just watching that and the crowd responded so well as well. And, and Vettel, we know he's gone from Formula One now, but he enjoyed it as well. That was really cool to see. Let's get into the first of your big questions then. Your first big question to address, can anyone stop Max Verstappen and Red Bull? I think it's going to be very hard. Um, momentum's a big thing in the sport and we've seen it, but... I think Mercedes was an anomaly last year, and and that's what gives me a bit of hope. I mean, Ferrari is funny. What they achieved last year in terms of performance, when they hit the ground running, was seriously impressive. You know, they gained 0.7% year on year in the previous two winters, and that's a big step forward. That's where all this frustration for all of us came from, right? Because finally we had a quick Ferrari and then they just drop the ball on on variety of things, which we'll come back to. So if Mercedes can get over whatever their conceptual issues were last year, 
then they can stop Max Verstappen. If they can't get over that, I, I just find it hard to believe that anyone can um, get over that. Max as a driver, what do you think he's learned from being world champion over the last couple of years? He has more God-given talent in his little finger than most drivers on the planet. You know, the the guy is sensational um, in terms of just raw talent, speed and car control. And I think he always had a lot of self-belief and confidence, but winning a couple of world championships has given him maturity. Um, you know, as Kev well and truly knows, at the end of 2021, there were certainly several moments where, uh, you know, you, you question what he was doing in wheel-to-wheel combat with Lewis. But we saw a different Max Verstappen last year. The drive in Budapest, the drive in Spa, where I think on previous years he would have knocked his front wing off. I think he would have gone for a gap that was closing. He just waited. And okay, he had a car that was superior and gave him that luxury. But I, I just thought that there was a driver last year who didn't feel he had to get every pole and every overtake he moved on. Imola, um, Miami... Sandvort, these are all races which he he managed the tyres really well and won the race using his brain in a almost sort of Alain Prost-esque manner. Uh, I'm thinking more Lewis Hamilton, Mexico 2018, that sort of thinking. I know uh, over a year ago you took some flack from his fans for pointing out what you thought were his weaknesses. That was probably, what, December 21, you put a piece online? Or yeah, well, that? we had a fantastic... Oh, well, my open letter, yeah. You are, yeah, 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 it was a bit, yeah. a bit before that, uh, actually. Went, went down... Well, Monza was when I finally had had enough uh, in 20... We probably don't need to go over all that again, because I agree with... I so do. My, my question is, what's changed since you wrote that? Well, letter? I think it's partly the maturity of having been world champion. He's less desperate. Uh, and I, actually, I liken it a little bit to, to Senna's career. I'd say maybe post 1990-ish into the 91-92. I think he was driving better then uh, and started to add a little bit of that Prost-type thing into his game. The big caveat with Max is after Interlagos at the end of last year, I still think he's got a, a mental block on Lewis. Now, he's uh, Alex can talk about this because he actually interviewed Max about it, but from, from what uh, Alex seems to have heard... Max has got an actual, it's almost like a subconscious, but he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why he keeps crashing with Lewis. And what's happened is that Lewis was always doing the, I've got the bigger picture. When you lunge down the inside, I'm going to let you win this battle because I'm going to win the war. Well, halfway through 2021, he went, I can't afford to do that now. And he here, <laughs> just a few yards from where we're sat, he made his point. Okay, did he do it in the right place? Pretty high-speed corner. But he asked Max a question. You're in a quicker car with a championship lead, and I'm the one in, you know, I'm the attacker, what are you going to do about it? And Max just turned in like he always does. So since then, I think we've had a situation where Lewis is going to play hardball with Max and Max hasn't responded to that yet. So every time they get together on track, something happens. So if Max wants to win, if Mercedes are as quick as we hope they will be to create a championship fight, at the moment, George Russell's going to be world champion because every time Lewis and Max are together, they'll crash and George will win the race. So but Max will have to start being a bit at the savvy that he showed when he was racing Leclerc last year because some of those races were great you know Max can do it it's not a, it's not an ability problem 
Um, he just needs to change his attitude towards Lewis specifically, uh, and then we could have a great championship fight. So, so on on the on the maturity thing in terms of Max changing from becoming world champion, I think you saw that almost immediately in how he raced Leclerc in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. Those fights were absolutely tremendous. If you like, go watch, go back and watch a sort of highlights package. We've got Drive to Survive coming out again, the new series ahead of uh, the F1 season as it always does. Watching those battles was absolutely incredible. And I think Kev, you mentioned that interview. He talks about. You know, when I, when I spoke to Max in Abu Dhabi last year, he talks about racing Leclerc, racing Russell, racing Norris. I think he thinks I've, I can take these guys. I'm, I'm, I've got them. I am superior. He doesn't know if he can beat Lewis. And I think you see that in clashes like Monza 2021 and especially Inter Lagos 2022. There's, it's almost like it's their strange incidents where he just gets back on it. Is he making a point? What's he doing? Because he doesn't know if he's, if he's got Lewis. Um, but just returning to the to, to Karun's uh, question, can anyone stop let's say the Red Bull element of it, is it going to come down to the cost cap fine? How, how much is that a problem? Because potentially it's more of a problem for your piece next year in 2024 when it comes to, because obviously as you say in your piece, screen, a lot of the base work for this car was done already before the ACR restrictions came in. There's two sides of it, right? One is you go, well, the cost cap, the, not the cost cap infringement and therefore the penalty of the wind tunnel time is going to hurt them. But they had half a second in hand. You know, and that's a bit of a luxury. So will it just offset itself? Time will tell, I guess. It's that annoying thing about Formula One. It's like it, it doesn't ever sit still. Like the the other teams making their gains and we're pretty sure when Mercedes sort of said it outright, we re- they reckon they had nearly four tenths locked into the package that went wrong with the big floor last year. So if they can get rid of that at a stroke, they've made a massive gain and therefore you won't really get to see the true impact of the Red Bull uh, aerodynamic restrictions. Karun, as, as someone on the big broadcaster on Sky, and also you're reactive on social media as well, so you're really, you are really connected in with what fans, the sentiment that's out there. I'm kind of interested in this, is it just me, or is does Red Bull have a popularity problem? They, we should celebrate them for getting back to the front of the grid. The team haven't changed there. It's a, you know, it's a British team, so why aren't more people into Red Bull. There seems, it seems to be an easy an easy win to find them as almost, to criticise them. It's quite funny because we were talking about this in Abu Dhabi last year saying, um, when I say us, I was talking with, with the people at Red Bull saying how bizarrely they'd made themselves more unpopular with the British fans despite winning, you know, the two last two world championships and dominating the season. Um, I, I don't know. I think, you know, there's... Um, there's a variety of reasons, you know. Obviously, they don't have a British driver. Uh, I think there was, certainly in this country, there was very much a feeling that it was them against Lewis. And then you had George, Mercedes, and got two two Brits in that team. Um, and I think the old adage of, apart from Ferrari, the fans still gravitate really towards a driver more than the team is still true. Um, I think, yes, you've got McLaren fans, you've got Mercedes fans, things, but... They are more Lando fans or George or Lewis fans. Um, and I think certainly in this country, uh, so, you know, Red Bull aren't as popular. In fact, you're absolutely right. I think their popularity has gone down. Whether that's a lingering effect of 2021 and Abu Dhabi, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, you and I have talked about this before. And it's, I, think it, I think it's a blind spot that I have in terms of the tribal nature of Formula One, that it bothers me. Because my first, mum and dad first took me to 1994 British Grand Prix when none of this was here. We stood on the bank, watched Schumacher overtake Damon 
on the warm-up lap, get black flagged, ignore it. Um, he was, and then the British press at the time, he was you know, the, the, the German who was breaking the rules. And then, of course, the way 94 ended as well. And so I think I'm also a little bit wired to hate that because I don't like the tribal nature, the, the social media. I'm not on social media as much as some. But does that bot the whole... Because I talk to some American friends and booing is part of the sport. Like, just... It's, it's, no, it's, I, it's not serious, don't I, worry. I don't... I, I hate all that Max No, I, I, I do as well. And it is, it is too, uh, too tribal, really. And I think social media plays into that. I would say part of it is people don't like winners a lot of the time. We like the underdog. So it was like, oh, someone's got to stop Mercedes and Hamilton. Now it's like, oh, someone's got to stop Max and Red Bull. There's an element of that. I think there probably is a hangover from Abu Dhabi 2021, even though actually that was nothing to do with Red Bull. They just played the cards. That, that, was, no, that, that was not their fault. But I do think the way they conduct themselves makes themselves unpopular as well. You know, even during the whole cost cap thing, you know, Christian Horn was indignant with rage that people could possibly <laughs> accuse him of this. And then when, it, even, when they even came out and they're like, no, okay, he's gonna, they're going to get a penalty. They did do this. Even then he didn't just go, actually, yeah, uh, we, we we made this mistake. We're going to sort it out. Even then, he came out punching. Oh, it's, it was always against. I think they almost like to build up everyone's against us type thing. He's almost becoming his own pantomime villain from Drive to Survive, uh, and I'm not sure how much of it's a conscious thing or whatever. I think a lot of it comes, you know, comes from him. Very, he's kind of. It's almost a sort of Trumpian type thing, isn't it? Of never admit you're wrong and always go after the people that have just pointed out that you've done something wrong. I think if they came out of Abu Dhabi 2021 and said, we got lucky today, we were really going to lose this championship until Latifi crash. We got lucky. It's nothing to do with us. We didn't impose the rules. We just, we did our race and we ended up winning. And that's, that's an issue between Mercedes and the FIA to deal with. It's nothing to do with us. But we acknowledge the fact that really... Yeah, you know, sometimes in the sport you need a slice of luck. We were unlucky in Budapest and Baku earlier in the year, and today we got lucky. But well done, Lewis. It was a great fight. You know, sorry it didn't work out for you today. I I think the wave of um, negativity towards them could have been curtailed in just the the messaging and the way they came out with it. Um, You know, if they chose their words carefully after Abu Dhabi. But also there's a sort of, you, you at Sky would understand this very well, Kareem, because what happened in Mexico, because there's that objection to how 2021 and Max winning the title there is described. But actually, Lewis Hamilton was robbed of a world championship, but he definitely wasn't robbed by Max Verstappen and Red Bull. It was the circumstances. And there's, there's no denying that. That's, it's, it's the fact of the matter there. I think there was a little element of we're, we're deploying some power here. So maybe that has an impact on popularity and things like that. But just from approaching it from a written media point of view, because I think Christian Horn, I think it was in late 2021 when him and Toto were getting really into it in every press conference and everything. He was like, oh, the Mercedes media machine is in full swing. And it's actually, well, they do a very good job in terms of managing their messaging and things like that. But they also make... For us in the written media, they have a lot more availability. So take, for example, we've had quite a few uh, cover features on Mercedes drivers at the moment. We had George Russell. We've got Lewis Hamilton on the cover this week celebrating 10 years uh, of, uh, of, of driving for Mercedes. It's because they're available. And therefore, if there's more of that time, it's not necessarily going to have an immediate impact on popularity. But you can you can get messages across and you can do things like that. So I would suggest that plays a part as well. well you, you said last year as well that the United press conference and Max was saying... Um, no one knows the full story about what happened in Monaco, and I'm really annoyed about uh, the whole uh, Perez 
stories that are going around in the media and you said, well, tell us the story then and we'll report yeah. it. And he went, no, I don't want to. That, that was in Abu Dhabi. Oh, come on. It's like, well, if, if we're not selling the whole story, Matt, what is the full story? Well, it's not, you I know, I don't want to say that. So it's like, well, okay. Um, let's talk about the fastest car in 2022 because you'd think we have been talking about that, but it wasn't. I think it was. I know what I know what Karun's getting at, but I'll, go on, go anyway, for it. Anyway, yeah. Karun, Ferrari, technically the fastest car last year. You are boss for the day. Would would you have made a change in management and got rid of Benotto and, and bought Fred Vasseur in? I'm going to quantify that by saying the fastest car over one lap. Okay, fine. Not, yep. not in the races. Yep. Um and I probably need to edit my column before it goes to print. I'm hoping that Marcus Simmons is doing that as we talk. That, that would be ideal. Um, but yeah, listen, they, they produced a very fast car, a car capable of winning several races. They, they, were, they were struggling with tyre wear, which is why I think they lost on a couple of occasions, but they had a, a very fast car. I personally think they, sh- they should have kept Binotto, but in a, in a slightly different role, because coming back to my earlier point, from an R&D standpoint and the power unit standpoint, which is actually, let's not forget his background in the company, they did a superb job. You know, you look at the, the PU that they had at Alpha and Haas, you know, they all made a big step forward. And I think he had a, a lot to offer still to the team. I think he, from what I understand from various people at the team, he tried very, very hard to create a no-blame culture. You know, the old-school Ferrari thing of, right, you got this wrong, you're off on a Monday after a race. He wanted to get rid of that culture and, and you know, get people to work without fear that they're going to lose their jobs, which is fine, but you still got to hold them accountable when they don't do their jobs properly. And I think perhaps he, you know, he's, he's suffered the price for trying to protect all the people around him. And in the end, he's the one who's taken the... the blame for it so yes he has to shoulder some blame do I think he should have stayed at the team I, I do could he have worked alongside Fred Vasseur as one in charge of technical and the factory and the other in charge of sporting and track side possibly but we'll never find out is that how to run a modern Formula 1 team no but I think Ferrari's not a normal team I think, I think Ferrari's unique you know and, and, and I think there's you know, the, culturally, they're a very different organisation. The pe- the people who work in the team are unlike any other team. Not being funny, even geographically, right? Alpha Tauri are the only other team based in Italy, but guess what? Half their team's based in Bista. So, I think Ferrari is different. And having someone like Binotto there, who's been at the team for so long and understands the deep-rooted cultural mindset of the workforce, is beneficial, so if you look at his, his peers, Toto Wolff has a stake in the team, a third or so, whatever it is. So Christian Horner doesn't, I don't think, has a, a stake in, in, in Red Bull, but has been there so long, no one's going to depose him. He, he's, he answers to very few people. Ferrari's a really interesting case. It seems to me you've now got a year. If you're the boss of that team, you've probably got a year. That's very different to Jean Tot. How long did he get when he first came? It was a, it, that was a slow burn. Yeah, I think it is, it is a bit different because I don't think Ferrari are in quite the crisis as they were in that... 1992, 93 year. That's the key thing. They're in a really good place. They're in a good place. I'm not going to go that far (laughs) because they did manage to lose last year's championship as much as Rebel won it. I completely agree with everything Karun said. I wouldn't have got rid of Bernotto. I think having having him on the technical side with all his experience and and proven proven improvement over the last two or three years. But I'm not convinced that Fred Vasso, with all experience, can suddenly make them all brilliant at strategy and fix all the things that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to see it 
But I, I, I think they need a significant car advantage to beat Red Bull Mercedes over a season because I just don't think they're strategically sharp enough. They're always going to make mistakes. Their reliability, they need to sort out. Like, I think they need to have maybe not quite FW14B levels like we talked, but they need to have a good few tenths in hand, not because of the drivers, I think because of the way that the team is. Then they just can't, you know, the, there were too many strategy errors. And we know that Red Bull... Uh, and Mercedes, Red Bull in particular, actually, are really sharp on strategy. So if it's if it's neck and neck across the season, I think Red Bull beats Ferrari every time. Unless they get a Ross Braun-esque person on the pit wall, yeah. like they had, you know, because actually, you go back to... 99- well, he's free now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you go back to 99-2000, they were operationally the better team. I mean, they got Eddie Irvine into championship contention in a year where McLaren were were miles in front in terms of pure pace. That was part of the operational side of the team. As a some of its parts, the driver pairing is the best of the best. They, they've got the right drivers. They've got a great package. Alex, what do they have to do to win this year? Well, I think I'll go back to what I said in our live podcast at ASI. I think a real big chunk of it is the reliability of the engine because we now know that they effectively, from sort of Austria to the summertime onwards, they turned it down. They couldn't run at full whack in Mexico. It was massively turned down because of the way their turbo works. So if you can just cure that alone... Put and you know keep building on the package that they've gone. That's that, that uh, they've got already. That's a massive, uh, massive game. But yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the driver lineup there, uh, Martin. Because Karin, you said in your piece that you think the Mercedes driver lineup is the best on the grid. I think would I just shade it to Ferrari? It's so close. I mean, they're both very, very good and exciting lineups. I think maybe I just give an edge to Ferrari. Um, but in terms of Fred Vasseur, before we, I didn't know. Well, Karim, I, I know, Merck, yeah. It's the Merck team. Come on, I think Merck have got think, two two world champions in the team. One one current, well, yeah, one a past one and one a future one. I think Ferrari have got one world champion potentially in the team. Mm, yeah, all right, fair enough. But we've just on the <laughs> how many races have the Ferrari drivers won collectively? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, but I mean, if you add up, if you if you add up, hundred and four from the series. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not like George Russell contributed many of them anyway. Um, just on the drivers with Fred Vasseur, Karina, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your uh, thoughts on him coming in and working with Leclerc, who's worked for uh, previously, and Carlos Sainz. I mean, I remember covering F2 in 2017 and talking to Sebastian Philippe, the, the you know running the ART team, and I was sort of interviewing him, and he was always quite a quite a stern person to get to know with a humble humble journalist. Uh, Fred Vasseur gives him a call, and he's like, "Here's the boss. I, I, I have to answer this sort of thing." And he was immediately on the phone like that. What are his strengths when it comes to man management? Is he it, how how is that useful for a driver? Because correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't race for ART in your junior career, but is it helping the drivers or just running a really tight ship what is impressive about Fred is that he hates losing he really hates losing and he's, he's a tough character so he won't suffer fools you know I think take the example of last year I think once they got to I don't know let's say the third strategic error in the, the season he would have gone right we need to make some changes here and, and I think that we will see that difference I think he, he he's a very very tough um operator in that respect I think he's he's good at working with drivers you know um, as you said I didn't race with ART but I know a lot of drivers who did and I, I raced against ART and um, so I've got to know Fred you know throughout my time in, in GP2 in particular and you know you'd see him there burning the, the midnight oil and I remember actually in 2007 we were at Magni Core and um, the hotel next to the circuit my dad and I had gone for dinner and this was obviously Lewis had won the GP2 championship the year before with Fred. And now he's at McLaren and he's having this amazing run of races. 
And actually, he and Lewis were having, so Fred and Lewis were having dinner at the, the table next to us. And you could see Lewis just sort of talking to Fred, you know, sort of trying to just chat with him as a mate. It's like he needed to get out of the McLaren pressure cooker situation and just talk to a bloke who he knew really well from Formula 3 because they'd won the championship in F3 together and then GP2. And and I think that kind of tells you how much Fred understands drivers and what it takes to to try and unlock performance from drivers. Um, and Lewis recognized that even back then. So I, I think he, you know, he, he is the right alternative candidate to have been hired by Ferrari, no question about it. But I think having Binotto alongside him would have been a better option to for both of them collectively. Your third big question for this year, Lewis Hamilton versus George Russell. Who will lead Mercedes Challenge? How hungry do you see Lewis Hamilton to be to get number eight? Because you see him week in, week out. I think he's super hungry to get number eight. I mean, it, it, it was so close between them last year, and um, I wrote in my piece, but I think that what George did at the, the end of the season, to me, was more impressive than the start of the year. Lewis, at the beginning of last year, reminded me of Senna, middle to end of 93. you got the driver who's the best of his generation, and he's in a car where he wasn't able to be competitive. You know, he got to Bahrain, or he got to uh, Jeddah early on, he goes at best he's going to scrape into Q3. I mean, where's the motivation? So then he goes off and tries to try all these radical setup changes to unlock performance and it's not working. But once we got to Barcelona and he had that puncture early on and recovered um, superbly, the the Lewis of previous years just suddenly woke up because like, ooh, I've got a sniff of a chance here. I could get a podium. I mean, the drive in Canada was brilliant. You know, he and George were tyres were two laps apart, very similar in that last stint, slightly different downforce levels. But he, he ran away from George. You know, he was making five, six tenths a lap on George. And I think that came as a bit of a shock to George, um, I imagine, because you suddenly, you've, you've had the legs, you've had the measure of your teammate until then. And all of a sudden, you just see directly in front of you this car disappearing in the distance and you can't do anything about it. And as a driver, psychologically, I, that's pretty tough when you see your teammate disappearing off. It's a horrible feeling. And then, you know, Lewis went on a run, didn't he? Nine races in a row or something where he outqualified George. And I thought, therefore, what George did towards the end in Brazil and in Mexico and in Abu Dhabi to bounce back and get himself as an equal to Lewis and crucially outqualify him in Brazil to get that win when Mercedes had a sniff of a chance was very impressive. To answer your my own big question, who will come out on top? I still think it'll be Lewis. How do you feel George entered Mercedes? Because Lewis can be a bit of a teammate breaker. As you, the t- you, when you look at your teammates' traces, you go, I can't drive that quickly. Nico said, right, one and done, and that's it. And I fully respect him for that. Bottas put up a good fight at times. But how do you, how do you feel George's kind of mental and preparation, et cetera, et cetera, how did he acquit himself? Superbly. You know, absolutely superbly. And uh, we all knew George was exceptional. You know, I I first met George here when he was a teenager in Formula 4 and he was exceptionally focused. Even then, he was very, very serious and very focused on on doing the job and that's carried through. Um, You know, listen, he was in a win-win, right? If he beat Lewis, it's amazing for his career. If he doesn't, there's no shame in being beaten by the guy who's statistically the most successful of all time. So... Um, I think he was in win-win, but he grabbed the opportunity with both hands. 
he's always been a sort of an old head on young shoulders, hasn't he, George? I can remember talking to him in 2014, 2015, and you're blown away by how young he is and how eloquent and how focused he is. Um, but I think just going back to what you said, Karina, about him bouncing back, don't forget that run of races. What was it, Singapore, turning science around in Austin. He goes off in Mexico trying to get pole. He, he, that could have, you know, he could have ended 2022 on a sort of wobbly level, but he hit back immediately and that's going to stand him in really, really good stead. And I think there's just one really interesting stat. I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's, it's rather overblown, but I mean, we did use it on the cover feature of the mag a few weeks ago, Kev. But um, if he beats Lewis Hamilton again this year, he will be the first driver in history to have been, to have beaten as a teammate, beaten Lewis Hamilton twice, which is quite a nice, quite a nice little stat. Yeah. I mean, well, nat- naturally at some point there will be a crossover because one's, coming up and I do think Lewis is past his peak I think he can still access his peak but not if you look at what he did sort of 2018 to 20 he hardly left a crumb on the table at any point even when Merck was looking a bit oh in 18 against Ferrari he was absolutely smashing in the points and I don't think anyone else on that grid could do at that stage I'm not sure that he can quite at that level but then if he gets a sniff of the championship I wouldn't but but against him just doing what he did in 21 and just taking it he knows how to win a championship I'd like to think there's another, there's one more big championship challenge in Lewis. I really want to see a, I want to see him get the eighth, really, or at the very least get so close and kind of, you know, a kind of glor- glorious failure or getting the eighth. And I think, but over time, George obviously will eventually come past him. It'll be an amazing story, won't it? You know, after Abu Dhabi twenty one, the nightmare of. 22 for him to bounce back and get that eighth world championship you know I feel for all of us being a part of the sport you know it'll be fantastic to witness that bit of history I I said two or three years ago I don't think there's anything Lewis can do now to enhance where he is other than going to throw him in the world championship there and doing what Seb couldn't and Fernando couldn't etc but actually I'm almost revising that now because of the way that the last couple of years has gone if he can come back yeah, into in his late thirties, having kind of got through that difficult year, help Mercedes turn it around, and then go out and beat Verstappen, Russell, and Leclerc one more time, then you think that's just incredible, really. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the midfields. Uh, your next big question, Corinne: Could anyone from the midfield raise the game and battle the big three? What do you think? Not this year. I, I just, I just can't see that gap being closed down this year. Um, you know, McLaren. I can't, I've lost count of how many times people, right from Andreas Seidel, who's not there obviously anymore, to engineers and drivers and, you know, everyone telling me, oh, it's a, we're in a holding pattern. You know, 24, when we get the tunnel going, 24, 25, that's when our next step's going to come. So it seems like they've sort of talked themselves out of this fight a little bit. Alpine showed flashes of speed, didn't they? Um, you know, the races like Suzuka were qualifying, they were right up there with the Mercs. But not consistently. Could they... I'd like to see more people get a podium. You know, the fact that we only saw Lando get a podium outside of the top three teams was a little bit disappointing last year. You know, previous years, it was cool to see the Gasly win. It was nice to see... Ocon. Ocon, yeah. Just stuff like that. You know, Vettel got podium somewhere and... Uh, it was a Baku, wasn't it? Vettel got a second. And it's just stuff like that was cool. You always get an element of that, don't you? Don't you? When you reset the... I went through all different rule changes. I think it was one. When they took all the gizmos away, that did close up the field because obviously that was taking something away from the big teams. But normally, if you have a rule change, it actually spreads things out slightly and then it 
it, it comes back together again. So yeah. we actually did kind of see that last year because I'd say there were fewer random results than we'd seen in 20 and 21. But I think over the next few years, especially with the cost cap and the wind tunnel restrictions, all the rest of it, it should, we should get back there. But I agree with Karina. I don't think we're going to see it in, I don't think we're going to see it this year. The thing is, I, I started off when I was looking at the gaps and rule changes, I, I started off sort of agreeing with you. And then I thought back to, say, 2009, a massive rule change. And it completely jumbled things up. And, okay, I get the blown diffuser created a few questions on that. But it did actually close things up and you had different people up there. And then 2010 was another rule change because they banned refueling. And all of a sudden, the cars, um, a, you know, a huge weight change. Go to And actually, it was an amazing season. Wasn't it? We had five drivers in contention with three rounds to go. So, yeah. It, but I think on this occasion, you're, you're right. It's sort of followed convention, hasn't it? The, the rich have gotten richer. And uh, I don't think we said at the beginning of the podcast we're at Silverstone. I think we've alluded to it. I was going to, that was going to be in my intro, but I, I may have forgotten to specifically say that. I'm not here that often, but in the few times a year I do come up, I can't help but notice the Aston Aston Martin investment a stone's throw from where we are recording this. It just looks really impressive. So they're spending money and they've got a good team. What do you think of their chances? I, I wrote in my piece, I think they're the dark horse of the midfield. I... I think they've got a real chance to be fourth this year. I started off the season last year being pretty disappointed um, with where they were because it just... And then they had this, I don't know what we're going to call it, Red Bull Inspired, I think is the words they use. <laughs> Update. You know, they, they had this sort of... Uh, the Red, Green Bull. Yeah, well, you know, whatever you want to call it, arrive. Was it in Barcelona, I think, uh, last year? And... But they didn't quite make the leap. But actually, towards the back end of the season, you know, Vettel started again in Q3 and Stroll got in Q3 a couple of times. And actually, they, they made progress. I think there's a huge element of a bedding-in period going on there. You've, you've got this team of people who've done things in a certain way and worked together as a small team. And then Stroll's gone in. Lawrence Stroll, I should say, has gone in. Opened his checkbook, gone, right, we're going to go and hire these heavy hitters from... Red Bull and and actually, you know, when you talk to people like Christian Horner or people at Mercedes, you know, they tell you that it's McLaren aren't coming knocking to poach people, Ferrari aren't coming to poach people, Aston are. You know, Aston have been poaching people from the big teams a lot over the last eighteen months, but they've all got to gel. You know, they're all coming with different philosophies, different mindsets, different experiences of how to design and operate a fast car and team. And they've got a gel. And, and for me, this year, uh, Fernando will be a catalyst for that, won't he? Yeah. I mean, I, I was talking to Mark Williams about this, who obviously used to be at McLaren, and when they had the partnership with Force India, and he said that what really impressed him about them was their agility. Like We, we called them in you know, in Allsport magazine a couple of times, like probably pound for pound the best team in F1 at that time because of what they were doing with what, what they had. So, But the problem is like, you've thrown a load of new people and a load of investment. You've got to somehow utilise that and keep the agility, and that's a, that's essentially a management issue. Um, and I, I hope they do. I think it'd be great to have another big. Kid. They kind of slightly remind me of Red Bull, early days of Red Bull. Except, um, my caveat to that is Lawrence Stroll doesn't. 
Mastership's just employed the right people and went, go and do it. Best people we can find, age you knew it, da, 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 and go and do your thing. But Lawrence is a bit more hands-on. I mean, you can tell that by who's in the second seat, right? So that, that to me is wasting points. So at this stage, it probably doesn't matter too much. But there will get a point where you go, do, you know, how, how serious is this? Like, how long are you going to try and make Lawrence a world champion? Because it's, it's not going to happen, right? But Fernando... Alonso knows how, how things should operate. So I think it'd be fascinating. There are two potential powder kegs, I think, in the paddock this this, this year. One is the sort of the Aston Martin Alonso situation, because he's not the most quietly diplomatic individual in the paddock, is he? And the other one is the Gasly Ocon lineup at Alpine. I think that those two are which one of those is going to explode and create lots of headlines first. Of which we'll come back to both questions <laughs> because they're both Korean's big questions in a second. Um, let's talk about your uh, your next big question, which is will McLaren improve enough to keep hold of Lando Norris? I didn't know exactly how to answer my own question for this if to start with. Um, and I suppose this was Kevin's question to me. My fault, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to blame him for this one because where's he going to go is the question, right? And the reality is, I can't see him going to Red Bull to be a number two to Max. Ferrari look like they've got their two drivers locked in. So, really, his option is to go to Mercedes when Lewis Hamilton stops. Because George isn't going anywhere. He can stay at McLaren, I think, until that happens, basically. And and McLaren can safely hold on to him until that happens. But, let's say we get to the end of this year and Lewis suddenly decides, I've had enough, I'm gone. Then... I feel like it's it's going to be quite a complicated process then to because no doubt about it, Lando's got to be the number one pick, hasn't he? He has got to be Mercedes' number one pick to replace Lewis. But a masterstroke so to get him signed up for so long by Zach and the team. Brilliant, brilliant uh, negotiation by Zach and the team to lock him in. We all know that contracts people can be bought out of contracts and they get bought out all the time. Look at Gasly, we just mentioned. Um, it happens all the time. But it's going to cost um, more, and, and it's you know it's it's trickier for Lando to get out of an existing contract. I, I would just put forward a, a, an alternative future theory. If he's still not won a world title at Ferrari, would Charles Leclerc be an option for Mercedes to go alongside Russell? But maybe just just thinking of your uh, question, Karun, it's almost like this is a question for next year. Because I don't think, as we've yeah. just said, I don't think McLaren... Okay, I can copy and paste yeah, Exactly, well, as, as, we, as we've talked about earlier with that. I think, um, you know, I don't think McLaren are going to step forward. I think F1 does really want to have a, 2020, a 2010-like season, which I think they might get with the big three if Mercedes are up there. But I don't see McLaren stepping forward. But he's not, I don't think, there's, a, there's no danger of him leaving anytime soon because of the, the good work with the contracts. So, yeah, my, my suggestion would be, would Mercedes perhaps look elsewhere? But also, as Matt Kew has, has written and, he, and he's very adamant about out. Audi, Audi coming in 2026, he's got to be a, a, a really attractive candidate for them, Norris. Yeah, but that's still four seasons away, it's, isn't it? It is a long way, yeah. That's, you know, that's a long way away. What tracks do you go to that you see Lando Mania busting out? Because he's hugely popular in some parts of the world, isn't he? This one? <laughs> well, <laughs> so, he, so, he, he outsold everybody in merchandise, didn't he? The British Grand Prix this year. Really? Yeah, that's, I was told he outsold Lewis, this year. Yeah, well, you know, you see, obviously, number 46 Valentino Rossi stickers on cars when you're just out on the motorway and whatever. The only the only other one now is I've seen some, you know, some Lando 4s. Yeah, more than 44s. He's building. He's building to be a world champion. It would be a shame if he never did it. Same as Leclerc as well. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is a wonderful, it's almost like a sort of, I know it's a cliche, but a golden generation of driving talent when you think about Verstappen, Leclerc, Russell and Norris, right? So, right, we've just built this 
this whole scenario. What happens if Oscar Piastri comes in and beats Lando this year? This same scenario, I think, applies to your to the to the Ocon Gasly thing. There's potential for like career defining partnerships at the moment. A bit like Norris and Ricardo, right? Ricardo's reputation is never going to recover after no. these years at McLaren. Piastri's in a win-win, like George was last year, isn't he? Actually, but is for me that's a. That's an interesting one. As someone who hadn't followed Piastri, I mean, really closely, it surprised me that he opted to take to take a year out. But that is the. No, I'm not sure if he opted. Not okay. Well, he he had a year out. He could have raced somewhere. Uh, yeah, if not in Formula uh, One. Yeah, but he knew that he was like F1 was the thing, right? So That's you could some people though, get some people say... get into F1 by going around the houses because they've done 38 seasons in F2 or they've done Formula E and they get their opportunity and nail it and whatever. And then there are some people that are, are destined to F1 because they go, this championship, bang, next championship, bang, right, I'm knocking on F1's door. We saw it with George, Lando, Charles, and Oscar was the next one. Uh, it, he was, yeah, he, it's almost a shame that they're kind of together. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it would be interesting. Like, Piastri is the most exciting, well, we're, we're getting ahead of our questions. Yeah, I know, I, yeah, yeah. We're uh, but he's the most exciting rookie that we've yeah. got on the grid this year. Yeah. Okay, let's also talk uh, about an issue that we touched on, which is Fernando Alonso seems to have discovered the elixir of eternal youth because I was watching some videos of him turning up, shaking hands, doing hugs, and he looks in in great shape. You wouldn't bet against Fernando Alonso. Your question is, is the Alonso-Aston Martin partnership a match made in heaven or hell? Why why do you want to answer that? It really will depend on on how competitive it is. I, I, you know... People often ask me, one of the most frequently asked questions I actually get is, who's your favorite driver? And I, I don't actually have an answer because I, 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 you know, from the current grid, I don't like to pick a favorite. But I always you say, to, say you didn't like any of them. <laughs> yeah, well, I could say that. But I, I always say to people, if I had to choose one that I enjoyed watching the most, it's Fernando Alonso. And I enjoy listening to his team radio. Um, you know, we, we have the benefit of listening to the all of the radio on an open channel um, in the commentary box. And it's, I remember Interlagos last year, it's a three-stop race for, that he was doing, really complicated strategy. But it, he's in the car in the middle of the race, and he's telling the engineer, right, Gasly's going to do this, and Sosa's going to do this, and he's going to do this, so make sure we do... Th-. You know, he's, he's worked out what everyone else's strategy is and how he needs to combat that from the cockpit. And, and he's, an, he's one of the most intelligent drivers ever to have raced in Formula 1. And he, he is still motivated. He just wants to be successful. If the car is competitive and if the team is on an upward trajectory, I think that relationship will go fine. If he sees that it's, it's stagnant or it's not fulfilling his expectations, then I think it could be slightly tricky. And he, and he really busted open the summer break last year. It made it interesting for us to report on Formula One because that, that kicked off uh, all the dominoes fell. Oh, he, he he seized the moment, didn't he? he? Sort of, I think he 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 looked at his opportunities and how things are going with Alpine, and I think he'd realised, um, you know, the reliability factor there, things like that. Karin, you make a, a good point about Alpine just going back a little bit. If they can improve the reliability of their engine, they're they're, they're going to make a, a step forward points wise. Uh, but just going back to Fernando Alonso and the level that he's at, he's so good. Like, it's really interesting just to just to give uh, the listeners, the readers, a tiny bit of insight into how. I mean, you probably, it's probably fairly obvious into how things work at autosport.com specifically on the website we look at you know which drivers do well which stories get the most numbers and what happened. and actually a really surprising thing about Fernando Alonso is he doesn't score astonishingly highly he's pretty he's pretty average and I just find that so strange that people are almost 
not caring so much. Maybe it's just because maybe we've got a different generation of readers, things like that. I don't know. But he's so good, especially at, at his age. I think he is sort of, there are weird elements like that crash with Stroll and the clipping Ocon in uh, Brazil. That was sort of weird. Why did that, why, why, why did Fernando's driving there go a little bit off? But He's brilliant. And, I, and I'd rather, I think, I think I've said this on the podcast before. If, if, if I had to make a choice now, so for example, we know Felipe Drugovic, obviously at Aston as a reserve driver now, reigning F2 champion, would I have him or Fernando Alonso? It's not even a contest I'd have Fernando Alonso. No, we've had people contest, oh, you know, write letters in contact to say, oh, you know, Alonso, you know, he's one of these, another one of these old guys who's hanging on to a seat and, you know, should be given a chance to you. I completely disagree. Like, it's only, you only go if you're, you're past it, basically, or, you know, Seb's decided to, you know, Vettel's decided to go, but Alonso's crushed his teammates. Like, he was better than Ocon last year. He got outscored by him, but that was... <laughs> there were other factors involved there. I mean, that's a podcast in itself, really. But I, I think that part of the interesting dynamic Aston Martin will be, you know, Vettel beat Stroll, but he didn't, like, embarrass him. He didn't crush him in the way that Vettel beat Raikkonen. But when Alonso is alongside Raikkonen, I mean, they were in different postcodes. Alonso crushes teammates often. Um, and like, how, how will they justify keeping Stroll after this year if we've got a 100% Fernando Alonso? Because he'll be, he'll absolutely destroy Stroll. And would he then actually basically effectively be asking Lawrence the question, not literally, but, but just by his results? So like, right, what are you going to do with the second car? He's had long enough now. What are you going to do? This is his last big career move, though. Alonso, yeah. I don't know. I, I, thought, I, I mean, how many times have we have we thought that? I thought he'd seize out his career Alpine and then go and win Le Mans a few more times with a hypercar. And he's like, no, I still want to. I think the guys are for not. I can imagine us doing this in ten years' time. He's like, fifty-one-year-old Fernando Alonso has signed for the only other team he hasn't driven for yet. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it, it feels yeah. like it's got to be near the end, but he's still one of the best. I mean, I don't know where you'd place him. Yeah, but well, no, this is the thing. He is still the driver you would choose outside of. A sort of Lewis, Max, you know, Leclerc, George, Carlos, you know, you've got the, the sort of top five. But actually, Lando up there, I guess. But I, I'd, you know, I'd choose him over over 50% of the field. No, I'd choose him over Carlos. I think him and Lando yeah. were the standouts from the midfield, if we call it that, from, from last year. Um, yeah, so I think it's, yeah, it's kind of the big, the big four and then those two. But I and I also go back to the fact that I think on a Sunday in particular, there are still, I still think three drivers who were your A plus listers in terms of absolute consistency, and that's Lewis, Max, and Fernando. No surprise that they're all world champions. But I think if you look at it, take Lewis. Let's say Lewis's season start in Barcelona. Week in, week out, you can guarantee that these three drivers are going to extract maximum performance from their cars at every apex on every lap of the Grand Prix. Can I can I interject some stats into that point that you're making there, Karin, in that um, for this month's GP Racing uh, magazine, I did a feature looking at the fastest laps. Who's the fastest driver in Formula One? Looking at their fastest race laps. Now, I had to do all sorts of caveats because of the way modern Formula One is with the Pirelli tyres and they've all got the same fuel loads well unless they underfuel or whatever various things but just looking at every single fast lap from every single race and okay you've got taking crashes and effects and things like that there's some amazing subplots because obviously of course car performance is the big thing so shock horror Max Verstappen was, was number one was the quickest George Russell and Lewis Hamilton were almost identical that was I thought that was seriously impressive from George Russell uh, Lance Stroll edged Sebastian Vettel but Fernando Alonso 
blew away Esteban Ocon. It was like a, a, a four-tenth gap on ultimate race pace, which I think just proves your point, like the worth of what he's able to do. He's that cliche over London. He's relentless. Well, we saw it at Le Mans, didn't we, actually, over a much bigger stint length like if you because we did the various like 10 average of your your fastest lap average your 10 best 30 up to 50 or whatever and when he was at Toyota on his fastest laps I think between him and Buemi I think it was it was nothing and then 10 laps it was like "Mm," 30 laps Alonso's edging an average across 50 laps he's quicker than the other the other seven seven uh, five drivers because it was two car team that year um and because if you've got, imagine you've got a computer, a perfect AI machine that's doing the perfect lap every lap in that car, given fuel load and tyres, Alonso gets closest to that. There's the few, the fewest number of small errors. So he's, he just, over the, the longer a race or the longer a stint, the further he is ahead of everyone else except, you know, your other A-pluses. Yeah. And, you know, over a 23-race season, that's going to be valuable. Okay. Let's channel our inner A1 GP and talk about Team France. For a second, that's oh, a great segue. Like, wow, yeah, I mean, did not expect. <laughs> they were good. Team France were good at times, yeah, didn't they? Nicholas yeah. Lapierre, Lapier, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex, Alex Premat. Should we just do it? Yeah, yeah. Should we do podcast in A1 GP? Hulk Hulkenberg won A1 GP for Germany, didn't he? He did. He's back here. He's back in F1 in 2023. Your question: Will Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon be good together for Alpine? What do you think? Well, it's all started off quite nicely, hasn't it? You know, I mean, I. I think it's all fine till you get to the first... Corner? <laughs> well, I was going to say that the first moment where one gets favoured on strategy or one, you know, or track position in qualifying or just something like that. And then it'll all start to get a little bit edgy, I think. Um, look, the reality is I, I think it's a great move for Gasly. He needed to get out of the Red Bull system. It's a it's a great move. It's a great career move for him. I hope he rediscovers some motivation because he was, I think, starting to struggle at the back end of last year. And he's a good driver. You know, he got destroyed by Max. But actually, if you look at everything else he's done in his career, he's a very, very good racing driver. Um, and I'd like to see him do well. He was ultimately the team's third choice. You know, they tried to get Alonso. Publicly, they said they were in negotiation. Alonso's their number one pick. They didn't get him. Then they announced Oscar. Didn't get him. So... The reality is Gasly was their third choice. Um, you know, as much as they might now come out and say they've got a much better lineup than they ever dreamed of, the reality is that th- their own actions contradict that, right? So, but putting aside all the, the PR debacle of all of that, I think it the proof will be when you get that first heated moment on track. I think in performance terms, it's quite a good lineup. I think they should score some good points. But we know that from you know from his Red Bull days, Gasly can not always play the team game very well internally. And Ocon has it in for whoever his teammate is on track because he 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 seems to hit his teammate more often than anyone else on the grid. First with Perez and then with. So I, if they don't crash into each other during a race this season, I will. I will eat something that's on this table at the moment. Oh, they will do definitely a, have do a crash. Do a Bob McKenzie. Come on, we're here at Silverstone. Do the I'm going to run around naked in a kilt bet. I'm not really a fan of kilt, but yeah. Some, <laughs> sorry, some, sorry, that some, was your problem with that some, suggestion. Some <laughs> yeah. The kilt. Yeah, yeah. Different uh, there, uh, It would have been uh, fine. Yeah, He's also wearing... anyone wants to see me wearing a Borat outfit in the French tricolour. And he's also wearing a tartan shirt today as well, anyway. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I'd be amazed if they don't 
have some contact this season. Absolutely amazed. I'm sure Red Bull will let you jump in there. Something important though, top of their motor home. I am. I'm very popular at Red Bull. Yeah. We'll get our Photoshop experts to do Kevin and Mankini uh, for a future. Uh, this is that's, not that's good. Would you? Yeah, he's, he's, he's up for that. There we go. Um, okay, so that's covered off me. Those, <laughs> Kevin, those, but let's talk about the rookies this year. And uh, Karin, your next big question: Which of the rookies will shine brightest this year? What do you think? All the money's on Piastri, isn't he? I, I you know, I wrote this in the column and I was, I, I was thinking about I can't think of a, a rookie who's come in with as much hype and expectation since Lewis Hamilton I, I really can't I mean and I'm looking at you both of you to what, argue well, that when I read that I thought that's outrageous and I thought uh, oh actually well, because Char- we knew that Charles George and Lando were going to be mega but I don't think they had the wider uh, kind of profile yeah, but also the way he's arrived, right? You've got two major teams <laughs> exactly, arguing yeah. over services. You've got team bosses from the two biggest teams wading into the argument. And no, I think you're right. Yeah. And he's not, he's not really done a lap yet. So I, I would approach it in a slightly different way. I agree with your point, but it adds pressure. Yeah, right? yeah. So we know both Alpine and McLaren wanted him. But he came out and he, like, he's never going back to Alpine. He's, he's, he's shunned Williams as well and the plan for him to go there. He hasn't driven a competitive lap in a Formula One car. He could be terrible. He won't be, obviously, because he's mega. But it's a different, he, it's a very, people are going to be really paying attention to him this year because of, yep. it's like a, it's the, it's the cliche, like a rod through your own back because of the situation. And I think it's a really brave move. I quite like, I quite like the fact that he's gone for an ambitious, brave move of, Walking into the lion's den, you know, going up against a, an in-form Lando Norris in a car that is clearly a little bit tricky to drive, as Daniel has proved. And I think Carlos has talked about it as well, saying the McLaren is a trickier car to drive. You know, when he went to the Ferrari, it was easier for him to adjust to life at Ferrari. So, I mean, it's a brave move. And just for that boldness, I hope it works out for him. What I think is particularly funny on the McLaren being a difficult car to drive is that Norris doesn't like it either. <laughs> He's just like, yeah, I wish it was, I wish I, it was, I could make it work, but I wish I didn't have to. That was that line, wasn't there? If they've designed it around me, they've done a really bad job. <laughs> <laughs> can they can they fix that over the winter or is that baked in with a rule set? Oh God, the, you'd hope that McLaren's they should be able problems. to sort that out really, wouldn't you? But then you'd say that 2021 to 2022 like Ricardo was still struggling with similar things and like mm. it's it's really weird it doesn't you know obviously it reflects worse on Ricardo that that situation happened but it doesn't reflect brilliantly on McLaren either like I'm sure they did their absolute best and we know the lengths that they went to but it's just it's bizarre that well Seidel said that didn't he that it was uh, yeah. you know he was used to coming from a world of you know, endurance racing where you tried to make one car work for three drivers and you couldn't make one car work for one driver very frustrating it was I mean Ricardo and McLaren Vettel the last couple of years at Ferrari you know it's right up there in the sort of Carlos Reutemann Vegas 81 stories isn't it of just like what happened there yeah capitulation I mean, on that particular is the answer yeah, to that one but well, yeah that one yeah <laughs> but uh, look I mean it's one of the biggest mysteries really what happened to Daniel and McLaren it's just I I I still can't understand it because he left Renault. His form in that last season at Renault was superb. I mean, his quality lap here, I remember, Silverstone was outstanding. Probably one of the best of the season. So, yeah, uh, coming back to Oscar, I think he's he's taken a very bold and brave move and should be applauded for that and hopefully it works out. Nick DeVries is a rookie. Uh, we'll see him this year. What do you think of his chances? 
Well, slightly confused about classifying him as a rookie, but because he feels like he's been around for a long time in a variety of categories, but he is a rookie, of course, in in F1 terms. Um, yeah, I think he's you know he's got a, a good chance. I do wonder if you know if I look at the, the Formula E lineup Mercedes had, should Stoffel have been given another go in F1? I, I was, for example, I was looking at Haas and actually wondered whether instead of bringing Hulkenberg back after three years out of the cockpit, should they have stuck Stoffel in there? Not, I, I might have thought about it's that. It's not a bad shout because he got Alonso, didn't he? Yeah. That's, uh, he I, probably does exactly. deserve another shot. Yeah, yeah. That's, it, that's it's a point. bit like Gasly, right? In everything else he's done, he's been brilliant, Stoffel. And that period alongside Alonso has hurt his career. But I think De Vries will do a, a good, solid job. And actually, it'll be the make or break year for Sonoda, won't it, against him? He's coming in with what used to be the sort of more traditional sort of age range of making your Formula One debut, right? Of his mid-twenties, he's done very well in other categories. Um, But just it almost links back to Gasly. Gasly joining Alpine is great for Gasly because it's a clear step up the grid. But it was quite, it was almost shocking actually on reflection that the Alpha Tauri was as bad as it was last year because they had a very uh, stable package. The drivers could deliver in in 2019, 2020, 2021, things like that. Um, so yeah, so De Vries there coming in at the sort of the, the experience level that he's got in other cars adds a little bit of pressure there. But it's just, I think it's it's going to be more difficult. Like the question is which rookie will shine brightest. I think he won't he won't be able to shine even if he does a very good job simply because the AlphaTauri package you would expect logically won't be as good as, as the McLaren. Well, I think he'll do a solid job and enough to show that he should be an F1. I'm quite pleased that he's got his his chance. Like we've got the, you've got the three different types of rookie really, haven't you? We've got the 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 guy that should definitely be there and has been a you know, potential megastar. You've got the guy that's been around a while and has pretty much won everything else and you think, oh yeah, it's nice that he's got a shot. And then you've got Logan Sargent who's a bit like, well, it's not offensive that he's on the grid but there's nothing about his previous career that really makes you think, yeah, he should definitely be an F1 driver. On the other hand, he's replaced Nicholas Latifi and I think we'd all agree we'd seen enough of him. Nice chap though he was. You know, F1 wasn't, you know, he wasn't an F1 level driver. So they're all probably, it's, it's good that they're all there but Sargent I think is the one that's going to be, like, is he is he going to be good enough? Yeah, I think they probably should have gone for Mick Schumacher, actually, because clearly they're in a period of rebuilding and stabilising. You know, there's a whole raft of personnel changes at Williams and stuff, which we'll, we'll come back to. But, you know, they're in a period where actually they need a, some some stability. Uh, well, they need a lot of stability in as many areas as they can get. And actually having an experienced driver as Mick Schumacher... Uh, or Stoffel, I think alongside Alex Albon would have probably been a better choice. You know, Logan did a, a solid job, didn't he, in, in F2. He won some races and he was competitive um, there or thereabouts. Takes the box in terms of being an American driver on the grid, I'm sure. Um, but I, I think Williams would have benefited from having another experienced driver alongside Alex um, for this year, so so just on Sergeant, like you talk, you talk to people about well, sort of especially if if you might not know his sort of reputation because he's not been that long in the junior categories. They say well, he's an absolute star in karting and his car control and his things like that were seriously impressive. But then you go, you sort of, sort of got to follow that logically. Well, so was Max Verstappen, so was Nick De Vries. They were both karting absolute megastars, and it's it's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily translate as you go up into the more powerful cars and up the, up the categories. So. Yeah, I think I think he comes in with the least pressure on him at the very least, um, and all the best to him. He comes across very well. He's very eloquent. Um, but yeah, I think I think the bigger question at Williams is as we're going to come on to the the big team change there for a, a sport. I think it was Ron Dennis coined the phrase the Piranha Club. This James Vowles moving to Williams 
all seems to have been very friendly. We wish you all the best. You can go start your job on Monday. So friendly, Mercedes organised the press conference uh, after oh, okay. Vows was announced. I just think it was particularly amusing. But it's definitely not a Mercedes B team. Definitely it's, not. It's and you, but it's not. You can go sit sit on the sidelines for a year. So he gets to go and he gets to carry on working. Um, not at Mercedes B team. Uh, can James Vowles turn Williams around is your big question. Can he? I know James and like James and I, I think he it's, it's a great career move for him personally. You know, he's he's, he's got an incredible work ethic, um, real attention to detail. I quite like the fact that they've got an engineer from recent F1 experience in charge of the team. Feels a bit Patrick Head-esque in that. I feel like, um, you know, that, I think that's that's good. But he's got an awful lot of work to do. You know, Williams are... Um, there's, there's been so many changes over the last two years in terms of personnel and people. You know, as we sit here recording, I don't think there's a technical director announced yet. The, but that's just one figure. There's been so many people across the factory and the race team from a technical standpoint that have changed. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to be a big ask to rebuild that, to re-motivate the staff as well and get them, you know, get them backfiring on all cylinders and working cohesively it's a tall order but um, I think for James it's a good career move you know you know how much longer was he going to stay at Mercedes being a uh, you know a one-off a very strong engineering team but he was one off several you know you got so many heavy hitters there with James Allison and Andrew Shovlin and Ron Meadows all these people so I think it's a great move for him and um, you know for his sake I hope it pans out so I think this is a great move for Williams as well. Actually, I really, I, I really rate uh, Vowels, and um, yeah, it, it's just it's interesting to sort of read between the lines of what Mercedes was saying and not saying when it came to this. Oh, we wish James all the best and things like that. He'd stop making the decisions in terms of strategy or having the ultimate say on decisions on the pit wall. He'd handed that over to this team of other nine strategy engineers, and he was Total Wolf says it outright. He was doing like he was looking after driver contracts and he was you know getting involved in things like that, and it all suggests that there was like a, we see him as a team principal in the future now they're not coming out outright saying it and also that sort of if you did say that it would very much play into that Williams is a sort of B team narrative that they're so keen to avoid so you know I think it just shows you the quality that they saw in him but the thing with Williams is that so looking for example another team sort of down the grid Haas now they've got a new title sponsor in MoneyGram now they're saying we can finally actually operate at the cost cap level so they can finally go up. So the suggestion, even though I know Doralton have come in, they've invested, is the funds the big the, the big problem? And it does take a long time to turn these to turn these things around. So it's it's a good move for Williams, but I don't think it's going to be like an. There's not going to be. I would be shocked if it's like an instant gain up the grid. I, I would still put money on the fact that if one day Toto decides he's going to just take a step back, James will be his replacement. I, I, fully, I fully agree. When Wolf wasn't there in Brazil, when they won the race, who was running the team on the weekend? It, it was it was Vals on the, on the ground. Still one more question, and we're already eight minutes over time. It's all gone wrong on the pit wall. My timing has completely screwed up. Did today. you put the wrong tyres on? Are you working for Ferrari? <laughs> I was just oh, thinking, actually, saying harsh, Fernando Alonso can call other people's strategy. Maybe when Fernando finally gives up driving, Ferrari should just go, do you want to be our strategy? Yeah, so, well, you got, as, as we alluded to earlier, you got the red shoes on. I've got the red shoes on. Timing's all gone wrong. Uh, what is good and what's what could be improved, let me put it that way, about the 2023 calendar? I mean, how many races will you be at? You have a young family, yep. it, and 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 you know the, the TV work is 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 full on. 
compared to the teams that are pulling all-nighters and things, like you you are there in the thick of it. What's 23 going to be like for the people who work in the sport that we love to watch? Well, I personally think 20, and I wrote this in my piece last year, I think 20 is the right number. You know, more than that, I think you start to devalue each race, first of all. But secondly, I think the the pressure and the workload for the the men and women working on the ground is incredibly tough, right? You know, all of a sudden, you, if you've got 23 races plus a couple of weeks of testing, that's basically half the year that you're telling people to be on the road. And that's not particularly inclusive to people with young families, you know. And uh, I, I think the sport needs to think about that. The cost cap hasn't helped, you know. The fact that they're now limited in terms of resources means that they can't go and get an extra 10 people to be on rotation, right, with um, with some others. So teams are having to do things like incentivize their workforce. You know, I know three of the teams who are paying people more money if they do over 20 races just to incentivize them to give up some of their family time. Kev, make note of that. <laughs> For me, like 16 to 18 races is is what I'd what I've got in my mind as to what an F1 candidate should be. But then I look down the list and think, well what would you what would you take out? And they're all you know, they're either traditional venues that you'd want to keep or they're the money that pay F1 loads and loads of money to be on the calendar. And they obviously they need those as well. I mean we've got no French Grand Prix. That's the third, the race that started it all. I know that you know Paul Ricard was, wasn't exactly the most popular venue, but it feels like the French Grand Prix should be part of the World Championship. But that's adding one rather than taking stuff away. I do wish they'd stop finishing at Abu Dhabi. I feel like they should try and mix it up with the season finale a little bit. Um, but obviously we've got we've got Las Vegas. I'm sure people will get excited about that. I got the impression from Miami that it was one of those races that was better if you were at because people who were there were like, oh Miami was brilliant, and then watching on telly they're like, that was a bit. Uh, so, well, I think there might be a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to go to Vegas, actually. I've never been to Vegas. Um, I, you know, you never know. We might see if we can get Crofty a tiger for the weekend and uh, have uh, a uh, little hangover weekend. Could you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms of Alex, in terms of covering this year, big, big season. There are a few people in, in the paddock where it's a badge of honour that they've been to, you know, the past 10,000 10, events. But we, we Autosports specifically split that Grand Prix editor role between you and Matt Q so that you weren't both... Thank you, Martin. Thank they, you for pointing go. that out. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, and, and Wait, you just do half the races? Correct. Did yeah. you know that? I have, weekend, I have weekends off. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Wow. They still don't pay like, me enough. That's not a badge of honour for us. Um, and we're fortunate to be able to, to, to do that. But it's still a big calendar this year. And that take, it takes its toll on everyone. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, the, the specific thing about the Grand Prix editor role is the, is the workload. We, we're pushing 24-hour days on the Sundays. I feel like Kev's itching to jump I was just going to say, I can always put you on NASCAR and you can do 36 weekends a year plus the couple of non-championship races. That, that sounds awful. But um, yeah, just, just, but, but it's interesting with, with, with the calendar and, and your, your, your question, Karim, what's good and what's not? There's actually a, a thing that's both good and bad coming up very early in the season. There's a massive gap between mm. Australia and yep. Baku because China would have been in there. Yeah, it yeah. didn't get replaced. So it's like, it's good for that burnout problem. And I'm actually going to, I'm doing Bahrain and then Baku is my, is my run. It Max, is a slow Max start to the season though, isn't it? Saudi so. and, and, and Australia. So I'm going to have almost like almost two months between races, which, which I'm very happy about. But from a fan point of view, it, the gap isn't that long, obviously between um, Baku and Australia, but 
there's people are going to go, oh, hang on a minute, we've just got started, we've just got the momentum. Oh, no, it's gone. And it's going to be look a bit weird. But I do, I'm just very glad that China didn't get replaced because of the burnout factor. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit unusual. I, I don't think fans will really mind too much. It's a bit unusual, obviously, China getting dropped off the calendar. Um, I can't see those gaps happening in the future. So, yeah, no, I'm going to 14, well, no, 13 now that China's gone um, this year, which is a, a nice number. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you for your big questions. Once again this year, you do it every year, and you can pick up Autosport magazine if it's not dropping through your letterbox already on the uh, on the magazine shelves. And you can, of course, subscribe online at autosport.com. What's next for you? Will we see you at, at testing? Will you be out there for that? Uh, no, I'm not going to testing this year. Uh, Saudi's my first race of the season. So I've uh, been, not been to Jeddah before, so I'm, I'm looking forward to going there. Yeah, it looks like a bit of a... I mean... I think you mentioned it before, Alex. I thought it was one of the best races last year. And, um, yeah, looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much. We look forward to uh, seeing you back on our, our TV screens. As always, uh, thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Autosport Podcast. And we'll see you on the next one. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.